Bible Biogs in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, one character at a time. Author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont is in conversation with David Taverner. In this episode, we're going to be looking at the life of Mary Magdalene, who I think it's fair to say, Mike, has got, rightly or wrongly, a bit of a a reputation. She's had really bad press, the poor lady. Uh, And it all goes back to a mistake. Really? That was made in a sermon back in 581 AD. Pope Gregory I actually conflated her with the uh, the sinful woman in one of the Gospels who anoints Jesus' feet and wipes her hair, and he mistakenly confused these two huh? Marys. Now, uh, actually, the Roman Catholic Church did put that right. It, it took until 1969 when Pope Paul VI oh. actually uh, corrected it. But because it sort of lingered for so long, there's been this sort of long-lasting popular cultural image of Mary Magdalene as Mary Magdalene, the loose woman, Mary Magdalene, the prostitute, and it couldn't be further from the truth, poor lady. And this has even drifted into into novels and all sorts of things. Oh, loads of novels, um, particularly the sort of Dan Brown type thing where she was the secret lover of Jesus in some of these stories, uh, not just based on Dan Brown, but going back to some really early uh, sort of apocryphal Christian literature, things that weren't included in the New Testament because the early church realised how made up these were. So things like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Philip, the Gospel of Mary uh, portray Mary Magdalene as a sort of leading figure among the apostles as very intimate with Jesus. Some of the traditions have them so intimate she ends up having a child by him, and uh, there are stories, apocryphal stories of tensions between her and uh, Peter. And in these apocryphal stories, uh, Mary's a woman of fabulous wealth and fabulous beauty. Uh, Of course, the New Testament tells us nothing about any of those things, who ends up allegedly making a journey to France and setting up a church there. And then it's at that point that authors like Dan Brown have a field day from all sorts of stories. So it's a bit like Chinese Whispers. It starts at this point and ends somewhere over here. It's Chinese Whispers multiplied a thousand times over. So, you know, if nothing else in our episode today, we want to try and get back to who this woman really was Mm. and try and lay aside all of that stuff that's been really unfairly dumped on her. Well, let's do that. Let's go to the Bible and find out what the Bible tells us about Mary Magdalene. Well, what we discover is that she was one of a number of women who supported Jesus financially from their own personal means. Um, Now, her name gives us a little clue into perhaps where her money came from. Mary Magdalene, probably Mary the Magdalene, Mary from Magdala. And Magdala was a village on the Sea of Galilee, and it was a wealthy fishing village. Now, interestingly enough, archaeological excavations just these last few years have been exposing more and more of Magdalene, including 
the ruins of a, a fabulous synagogue with beautiful mosaics in, in the floor. And what stands out is that uh, Magdalen must have been a pretty wealthy village. So if Mary came from Magdala, she, well, we know she was wealthy because she supported Jesus. But what we probably get an insight to here is that she probably was a pretty well-off lady from, it seems almost certain, a fishing business, since that was the source of wealth. So that's a little bit about where she came from and where her money came from. But perhaps I can just read you a couple of verses mm, from uh, Luke chapter 8, where it says, Soon afterward, Jesus began a tour of the nearby towns and villages, preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God. He took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases, among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he cast out seven demons. Come back to that in a minute. Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. So we've said in a previous episode that Jesus had a wider group of disciples. His apostles were 12 men, as we said in a previous episode, to represent the re-founding of the people of God. Mm -hmm. Twelve apostles in place of the original twelve patriarchs of the tribes of Israel. But in that wider circle, it's important to note that there were both men and women who were both warmly welcomed and included, who took part in his ministry, who listened to his teaching. And there was this little group of women in particular, um, Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Susanna are named in particular, who contributed from their own resources to support Jesus. So these were wealthy patrons, if you like, and they were digging into their pockets to ensure that Jesus and his apostles could carry on with their ministry without having to worry. Like many people supported it, like many people support UCB when we put out our appeals to say, come on, guys, if you want this ministry to continue, can you help us in some way? And here's what these women were doing in a similar way. Is it a little bit like crowdfunding today? Um, yeah, I suppose it is, except that crowdfunding can be very anonymous, can't it? You can just put it on social media and you contribute to something because it gets your heart. These women were clearly involved, so it wasn't just their money they were giving, it was themselves. And, I mean... That's ideally what we're still looking for in, in Christian work today. People not just giving their money, uh, but we want themselves. We want them to give themselves. So likewise, if people give to UCB, we don't just want them to give them. And give, yes, God bless you for that. But give and pray for us. Get involved. This is your radio station, not somebody out there. It's ours. And I think these women were really engaged in this ministry. And so, like we find there in Luke 8, they're very engaged in the ministry. They're there with Jesus, able to support him out of the wealth that God had given us. And, you know, still today, if God has blessed us financially, uh, there's, there's nothing wrong with money, but it's how we use it. And certainly if we're Christians, then one of the key things we ought to be doing with our money is seeing what God wants us to do to further his purposes and his kingdom and what churches and Christian missions we should be giving in, just like these ladies were doing. And as you said, they had the resources. There was somebody else you mentioned, uh, Joanna. 
uh, in this band of, of, of women. What, what does the Bible tell us about yeah, what her resources were? Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's business manager. Now, that's interesting. Herod. I mean, these were these nasty Idumean rulers, and we'll be looking at the Herods in a coming episode, so we won't talk about them right now. But they weren't the nicest of people, let it be said. But her, his business manager, so a guy of some influence and presumably therefore some wealth as well, and it's his wife, Joanna, who has access to some of this wealth. I think it's quite nice to sort of take some of the godless money and use it for good godly purposes, isn't it? Which it looks like she was doing there. But, but at a practical level, Jesus obviously, though he might have grown up um, in the building trade, didn't have obviously any kind of income. The disciples, his apostles, had uh, left behind their work with tax collectors or fishermen. So it looks like God is organising the economy of this group. Yeah, very much so. I, I mean, I remember reading an article some years ago which tried to convince me that um, Jesus was really quite wealthy and when he said things like the Son of Man had nowhere to lay his head, he just meant, you know, he, he didn't have a holiday inn to go to that night and he just needed somewhere for that night. But actually this article said he had a nice home. He had a very nice home. I'm still looking in the scriptures for where that is. <laughs> um Listen, Jesus was a very ordinary working man and life was tough for working people in those days. It was, you know, a survival economy. But Jesus gave up even that and trusted wholly to God to provide. Some of the guys that he called to be his disciples and apostles, people like Peter and James, who'd run, yeah, pretty successful businesses. They weren't rich, but they did okay. Matthew, who'd seen money galore as a tax collector, and all of these guys had had to learn a new way and learn that the kingdom of God is not primarily about money. But Jesus is realistic and recognises that we do need money to live on. They needed money to buy food and whatever it is that they needed. Interesting as well that Jesus has money not just for himself. Do you remember the treasurer of their group, Judas, of whom more another day, uh, was the carrier of the money bag, and it was there both to buy what they needed but also as good Jews to, to give to those who were poor. So there was a support from these women, and Mary Magdalene was amongst them. And you said that she was simply known as Mary Magdalene because that's where she came from. It's a bit like calling somebody Laura London, I suppose. Yes, exactly, or Jesus of Nazareth. Yeah. So this had become the name. People didn't have family names like we do today, Mike, Beaumont, David, Taverner. You were normally known either as the son of your father or from the place that you came. So Mary Magdalene identifies her as someone coming from, yeah, this wealthy fishing village of Magdala by the side of the lake. But you did mention just now that something significant happened to her and it's recorded there in those verses that uh, she'd had evil spirits Seven demons cast out. Now, what, 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 what is that about? What, what, what is a, a, a demon in this case? Yeah, seven demons. We're, we're not told. We're not given this story. Um, so it's like the New Testament notes it as of significance but doesn't major on it. It's not fascinated by the occult as some people can be today. Um, demons are rebellious fallen angels. We looked at them briefly in a previous episode when we were talking about Gabriel and we talked about angels there and how 
at the beginning, for some reason, Satan had led a rebellion against God and taken a third of the angels with him. We get that picture in a prophecy of Isaiah and Ezekiel and also a picture of it in the book of Revelation and how he managed to turn some of these spiritual beings against God. Now, I know it's easy to perhaps dismiss things like demons as, well, it it was just primitive thinking of the writing of the time, wasn't it? But I always say two things. Well, first of all, Jesus took this seriously. He took the devil seriously and he took demons seriously. And so we find many, many, not just the odd one, but many stories in the Gospels of Jesus casting out demons from people where they had perhaps so given themselves over to doing something or behaving in a certain way that that behavior had become almost personalized and personified through demonic presence and demons that at first tempted them and somehow managed to find their way in to their very soul. And so without, again, great fuss, it just simply says Jesus cast them out with a word. There's no great lengthy, you know, working out what the demons' names are or this technique or that technique, which, by the way, Jewish exorcists used to do at the time. That's what stands out about Jesus's dealing with demons. There were many Jewish exorcists at the time of Jesus who had their lotions and potions and and mantras and chantras and they, they had these set methods. Ah, oh, this is a number seven. And, you know, they would come out. Jesus had no time for any of that. Maybe a message for some Christians even today who can get over caught up in this sort of thing. Mm. Jesus took these demons seriously, but didn't give them a bigger place than they deserved. And that is he simply took authority over them, cast these demons out, told them to go back to the place from which they came. And that is continued in the New Testament. We find the early church doing that. And you can still find examples of people exercising ministry to do that today as just a normal part of Christian life. And I, I would say this, people say to me, how, how, do, you, how do you know if there, there's a demon there? And I will often say, well, do you know, if you find yourself persistently doing something that you know is wrong and you just can't stop, it's worth asking the question, is there something in me that I need to get someone to pray over, to break this stronghold, this power, this grip? Maybe that's an even better word in our culture. You're in a grip of something and the grip of this something needs breaking. And that's what Jesus did. One of the things I find interesting about this story with Mary Magdalene is where it says um, Mary Magdalene from whom it cast out seven demons. And it's almost like that the seven is, wow, that was worth noting, Mm. wasn't it? Mm. So it doesn't seem like the norm is that people have dozens and dozens of demons in them that we need to identify and name and cast out one by one. This was that unusual. It was worth noting in the scriptures that she had seven. But the New Testament shows no interest at all in what they were, how they went, what they're interested in 
is that this was a different woman when Jesus had dealt with them and they had gone. I was going to say, there's a before and an after as far as Mary's concerned. Absolutely. And the focus totally is on the after when she's freed from the grip of whatever it is that had gripped her. She becomes a completely new woman and is freed to start living as God designed her to live. And whatever it was that happened has kept her throughout um, because... Am I right in saying that she's with women at the crucifixion of Jesus so, so many years later? Yes, she is. By the time we get to the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 27 and 28, we find that she is one of the women there with Jesus at the cross in Matthew 27. She's actually one of the first to witness the resurrection uh, in Matthew 28 and in, in John chapter 20, which again shows how very, very central this woman was to that group of followers of Jesus. And I think it reflects her incredible devotion to Jesus. Uh, I can't imagine what it must have been like to watch a crucifixion, let alone the crucifixion of someone you love so much and it followed for the last few years. I mean, crucifixion really is is death by torture. You're nailed to this cross, and it's not just the nailing and the bleeding from the wounds that causes you to die, but you're left suspended from the nails that go through your wrists and your whole body weight pulls down and you can't get your breath. And so you're trying to pull yourself up to get a breath, but when you push yourself up on your feet, it hurts and you let yourself down again. And it is death by slow torture. Uh, And Mary is there in Matthew 27 as one of the women at the cross, not ogling at this thing, not fixated, not like, you know, people who stop watching a motorway accident when everyone slows down to look and see. Because she's standing with this man to the end. She's being committed to him and she's going to be committed to him right at the end. Fascinating is the women who were there, by the way. Us blokes have to hold our head in shame at this point. The men have gone running. It's the women who were there. And then she's also one of the first to witness the resurrection in Matthew 28, an incredible privilege, again, to be one of the first to know uh, that Jesus is risen from the dead. And Matthew 28 tells us that early on the Sunday morning as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. Now, why have they gone out? They've gone out because they want to anoint the body properly for burial. They didn't think it had been done. So as far as they're concerned, Jesus was dead? As far as they're concerned, Jesus is dead. What do you go to anoint? You go to anoint a body. And the very fact that they go to anoint this body shows that that's exactly what they expected. As they go to the garden where Joseph of Arimathea had buried Jesus in his private tomb, we read that suddenly there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven, rolled the stone aside and sat on it. Now, interesting, why does he roll the stone aside? Not to let Jesus out. Jesus is out already. Hmm. He rolls the stone aside to let them in to let them see that he's risen. 
and the guard shake with fear. And then the angel spoke to the women and he says, don't be afraid. I'm glad he put that in because I think I'd be pretty terrified. You know, you've got an earthquake. You've got the soldiers falling down as though they're dead. You've got this angel. And he says, don't be afraid. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He's risen from the dead just as he said he would. Come, see where his body was lying and there go quickly and tell his disciples that he's risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you to Galilee. So the women ran quickly from the tomb. They were frightened but also filled with great joy and they rushed to give the disciples the angel's message. So here is now Mary Magdalene, one of the two mm. who has seen that the tomb is empty. She's been one of the first witnesses to the fact that Jesus is not dead. And she goes rushing along to tell the disciples that Jesus is no longer in the tomb. And that's why Mary Magdalene uh, has sometimes been called in church history um, the apostle to the apostles. Because she actually went as a messenger, mm. which mm. is what apostle means, to go and tell the apostles that the tomb was empty. And then, of course, they start to go and Peter and John go and see for themselves that he's risen. And one by one, they start to encounter the risen Jesus. In those days, was that significant that it was a woman bearing witness to what happened? It's very interesting, isn't it? Because, of course, in a Jewish court of law, sad to say, a woman's testimony was pretty worthless. And yet God chooses a woman to be one of the first to witness this. Now, how much we should lay on that, I don't know, because there's a whole series of people who go and look and together their corporate witness, male and female together, um, becomes what is the core powerful testimony to the risen Jesus. But while I wouldn't want to major in it, it's one of those things I think is just worth noting. And I just wonder here if here is something of the, you know, the kindness of God, the tenderness of God, and the acknowledgement that some of these women had played incredible roles in the whole ministry of Jesus. And bearing with this was now in Jerusalem, this was happening. Um, she'd come from Magdala in the north. So she'd traveled with the band of followers of Jesus, committed financially to his ministry, been there at the cross, witnessed the resurrection. I mean, she'd been with him at key points in his life. Yes, and I think that all reflects the sort of wholehearted devotion and dedication of Mary. And that's reflected in something that goes on because uh, the story doesn't end with Mary just seeing the empty tomb. She sees the empty tomb, runs to tell the disciples, and then she comes back to the tomb. We find this in, in John's gospel, actually. Sometimes we have to put these stories together to mm. try and get the, the whole different, picture. Different perspectives on the same event. Exactly. And in uh, John chapter 20, we find that, again, early on the Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb, found the stone had been rolled away. So exactly the same as we've seen 
in the other gospel, ran and found Simon Peter. Again, exactly what we've found. Interesting, she says in John's gospel to Peter, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they've put him. Now, what does that say? She wasn't thinking resurrection. No. Nor would you, nor would I, nor would anyone. Mm. It had never happened before. Mm. What she's thinking is someone's moved Jesus's body. The authorities have got him. Where have they put him? That's really what she's thinking. So Peter runs, goes into the tomb, sees the grave clothes lying there folded up, and suddenly the penny drops for Peter. But let's come back to Mary, who we're thinking about. As Peter goes, we then read in John 20 that Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. And as she wept, she stooped and looked in and saw two white-robed angels, one sitting at the head and the other at the foot of the place where the body of Jesus had been lying. Dear woman, why are you crying, they asked. Angels can ask some stupid questions sometimes, <laughs> can't they? Because they've taken away my Lord, she replied, and I don't know where they've put him. Note what she's still thinking. She turned to leave and saw someone standing there. It was Jesus, but she didn't recognize him. Now, why? Well, sometimes people have said, well, it was early in the morning. She was upset. She was crying. No, no, it's because of what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection body. Jesus now had a resurrection body. That is a physical body, a real body, like the one he had when he was on earth, yet somehow gloriously transformed. This, this body will have wound marks still because he's going to say to Thomas, put your hands, your fingers in my hand. And yet this body seems to be able to walk through walls. We read in John 21, on the first day of the week, the doors being closed for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and appeared among them. How did he do that? He walked through the door, he walked through the wall, because a resurrection body is like mm -hmm. this body, but different. Mm -hmm. So that's who Mary is looking at. That's who she's looking at, but she doesn't recognise him. But does she think he's the gardener? That's right. It goes on to say, dear woman, why are you crying? Who are you looking for? And the text says she thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you've taken him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go and get him. So, oh. she, so, so she thinks the gardener is responsible. She thinks the gardener might at least know. Come on, you've been working here. You must have seen them taking him away. And the next bit is such a beautiful point in the gospel story. Tell me where you've put him and I'll go and get him. Mary. Jesus said, and she turned to him and cried, Rabboni, which is Hebrew for teacher. There was something about the way that Jesus said, Mary. And suddenly the scales fall from her eyes. Suddenly now she sees who this is in a way she hadn't a moment before. And she knows it's Jesus. And she's calling me, Rabboni, my teacher. And Jesus says, don't. Cling to me. Now, some of the older versions used to say, don't touch me, which makes it sound a bit mystical as though, you know, I, I now have a special body and you're not to mm. touch it. Can't be the case because he told Thomas mm. that he could touch him. What the Greek of the original text really means is that don't cling to me. Don't hang on to me. 
you can imagine this mm. woman who loved him so much wants mm. to now grab him and cling, he, yeah. you know, cling on to him and hug him. And Jesus, well, no, no, you can't cling on to me. Why? Because he's not staying. Mm. He has to go. He has other things to do. And ultimately, of course, he has to go to heaven. He says, I haven't yet ascended to the Father, but go and find my brothers and tell them I'm ascending to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. And Mary Magdalene found the disciples and told them, I have seen the Lord. Here's this woman who has this incredible privilege of being one of the first to see the risen Jesus and her faithfulness and devotion and loyalty and support has just been honoured with this wonderful, wonderful privilege. Do you think we've underestimated the significance of Mary Magdalene and the part she played in you know, the life, death and resurrection of Jesus? I think we've misunderstood her because of this confusion that we talked about at the beginning, that she'd been somehow conflated with the sinful woman who anointed Jesus's feet and so had been written off. But in fact, what we see here is a incredibly faithful, devoted follower of Jesus who uses the resources that God has provided her with to ensure that the ministry of Jesus and the apostles can continue. And I think for me, one of the challenges that that gives to us today, and one of the encouragements is, you know, Mary Magdalene doesn't appear like as one of the the big title roles. If she was in a movie, you know, her name would come in the small print lower down. It wouldn't be the starring. And yet it's people like that who often make up the backbone of the story of the gospel. She played an incredibly key role in her support of Jesus, financially, spiritually, practically. And I think today, you know, there are many Christians who sort of want to put themselves down because they're not the big preacher, they're not the big leader. And if Mary Magdalene tells us anything, it tells us, do you know what? Just ordinary faithful followers of Jesus can have an incredible impact, whether that be with their prayers whether it be with their financial support, their practical help, their cooking or their baking or their fixing. She's just an incredible model to us of how it's possible to be a faithful follower of Jesus, whom Jesus honours and loves, and yet who never gets your name in the big titles of the movie. David Tavener was in conversation with Mike Beaumont, who's written about the people of the Bible throughout the Christian Basics Bible. Catch their conversations anytime on the UCB player or with your favourite podcast provider. Just search for Bible Biogs in 30 minutes.